0: Uh, Exodus 25, so let me invite you to turn to Exodus 25 this morning. I'll be reading that for us. We're going to be looking at the first nine verses today. Exodus 25, verses 1 through 9. This as I read God's word to, our, to us. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and fine linen, goat hair, ramskins dyed red, and another type of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastpiece. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Here ends the scripture reading.
1: Good morning, everyone. Happy Fourth of July weekend to all of you. It's great to be here with you today. As we uh, come to this passage, uh, I want to ask you to bow with me for a word of prayer. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Or this morning our hearts echo the cry of the psalmist here. Lord, we desire to be in your presence, we desire to be near to you, and so we ask that through the power of your spirit that you would uh, come be near to us, even right now in this moment. Lord, there are some who come here this morning from uh, a week that has been hard and challenging who need your comfort, and there are some here who are feeling great and things are going well. Lord, we ask that as we gather here today that you would be near to us by your Spirit. And as we have sung already this morning, Spirit, preach the Son to our deafness. We want to see Jesus and we want to be changed by Him. And so we ask these things in His name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we are entering the last leg of our journey through the book of Exodus. Uh, we've been in this book for quite some time, since the beginning of this year. And including this morning, we have five messages left, and then we are on to new things after that. But we're sort of turning the corner, heading into the home stretch of uh, this last section of the book, which uh, sort of zeroes in on this thing called the tabernacle, this sort of odd tent thing that's in the middle of the desert. And I just was, as I was sitting over there this morning, I just thought, uh, maybe I should ask, how many of you have ever heard a specific, like, heard, heard a sermon or a series of sermons specifically looking at and thinking about the tabernacle? Anybody? Raise your hands. Okay, so about eight people have had uh, uh, any amount of specific time uh, given to thinking about the tabernacle. And you may have seen uh, something like this. Uh, there are all kinds of artistic renderings of what the tabernacle would have looked like. And there are even, if you Google it, you can find uh, different people who have uh, done actual, tr- tried to do life-size recreations of what the tabernacle looked like and the dimensions of it and all that stuff. And you can find that pretty easily online. Uh, but it, even though this is something that is unfamiliar to most people, this is, uh, this is a very, very important piece of uh, the, the, the puzzle in Scripture, as it were. This is a, a hugely important thing, and as we've even just heard a few moments ago in the psalm that I read before, um, before the sermon, uh, this is a theme that runs throughout many of the psalms, uh, and this is a theme that runs throughout the heart of God's people throughout the generations has been, God, we want to be in your presence. God, we want to be with you. And the tabernacle or the temple was the specific way that God actually uh, was able to answer that prayer. And so this is something that is hugely important in the story of Scripture, Uh, but it's something that uh, is somewhat strange to us. Uh, This is very difficult. When we look at a picture like this, uh, there's just not much about the tabernacle that really connects with us. I'm not sure we really have a cultural modern-day equivalent to what the tabernacle is, okay? Uh, You know, people would go in there, and they would bring animals, and you would uh, kill the animals, and you would sprinkle the blood, and you would sort of tear the animal apart and you would burn parts of it and then you would do these ceremonial washings and there's these priests and the high priest who are wearing these uh, wearing these garments that would look somewhat goofy to us if we're honest and so there's just all these things about the tabernacle that are like I I just can't connect with any of that. It's really hard for us to uh, identify with the tabernacle and so it's easy for us just to kind of put it off and say yeah it's, it's important but okay, what, you know, what difference does it make when I go to work on Monday? <laughs> what difference does it make when I get home and I have to clean up Cheerios off the floor? What difference does it make when i got to deal with an irritating roommate? You know, So it's, it, it, it doesn't seem like it has much connection to us, uh, but as I've mentioned briefly, I, I want to just suggest this morning that the tabernacle is something that is hugely important. This is a huge piece of God's overall redemptive purposes in the world is this little tent thing called the tabernacle, which will later uh, be called the temple in a more permanent form. So this is central to God's uh, redemptive purposes in the world. And so I think it's important for us to just spend some time thinking about what is the tabernacle? And how does it function? And what what is the purpose of it all? And what can we take away from this sort of strange tent in the desert? So we're going to look this morning at the tabernacle. Uh, And admittedly, we're going to, uh, again, pull back to sort of a 30,000-foot level. And we're going to, you know, we could look at, there's lots of details. (laughs) If you've ever read this section of the Bible, there's lots of details about all the tabernacle uh, furnishings and all this. And we could spend a lot of time looking in detail at those things. But we're just going to sort of pull back and look at the tabernacle big picture uh, and how it's used uh, in God's redemptive purposes. So, We're going to look at the passage today uh, that you heard read a few moments ago, and as we think about the tabernacle, uh, the first thing that we need to just sort of take notice of and observe is this, uh, the importance of the tabernacle, Okay, the importance of it. Now the tabernacle uh, is very important, and the author of the book of Exodus tells us about the importance and about the significance of the tabernacle, and he does not do it the way that we would maybe want him to do it. We would want him to come out and say at the beginning of chapter 25 and say, okay, guys, you got to know, pay attention because the tabernacle is really, 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 really important. Okay, so just just pay attention. Uh, The author is not quite as blunt as maybe we would want him to be, uh, but the author does communicate the significance of the tabernacle, and the way that he does it is by spending a full one-third of the book of Exodus talking about it. okay. The last one-third of the book of Exodus is spent entirely devoted to telling the story of the tabernacle and the events surrounding it, specifically with the golden calf. So in chapter 25 through 31, there are six chapters worth of longhand instruction that God gives, where he says, okay, here's what you're going to make, and here's how you're going to make it, and here's the, the, the material, and here's the dimensions, and here's what it's going to look like, and here's how you're going to do it. And it can feel so tedious, And laborious to us to just read the detail that is given in these things. And then at the end, in the last five chapters of the book, in chapter 35 through 40, the author then says, and Moses did exactly what God said, and then he repeats everything God said before. (laughs) So you basically have 11 chapters worth of just describing the temple or tabernacle furnishings and their construction. And we would, uh, as modern readers, we may want to say to the author, will you just get to the point? And I think the author would say, what are you talking about? That is the point. The point is that I spent 11 chapters just describing to you the way this thing looks. The point is that I spent 15 chapters of a book telling you about this thing called the tabernacle. So just think about this in the context of the book. The first 15 chapters describe the Exodus. God leading his people out of slavery in Egypt. This is the thing that the book of Exodus is known for. It's actually named after this. It's the Exodus. It's the parting of the Red Sea, and it's the people walking through on dry land. And this is is the thing that everybody knows the book of Exodus for. But only 15 chapters are spent on that initial phase of the story. Then you've got the next roughly third, where you hear about Israel wandering in the wilderness and about their time at Sinai where God gives them his instruction, he gives them the Ten Commandments, and he's shaping them into this new community, and he's bringing them into covenant relationship with himself and and sort of joining in this covenant partnership with them. So that's 15 chapters. And then the last part, 25 through 40, is spent just describing the tabernacle and talking about the golden calf. And so what we should just observe and notice is that the author of Exodus spends as much time talking about the tabernacle as he does the Exodus itself. And what that should sort of clue us into, if we're, sort of, if we're careful Bible readers, is we should just be clued into the fact that the Exodus is not complete until the people are in the presence of Yahweh. This is something we've said throughout the series, but it bears repeating again. The exodus is not fully complete until the people are in the presence of Yahweh. So in other words, the main goal of the exodus was not just to free the people out of slavery in Egypt. That is really important. That is an essential, that is an urgent need that they have. It is a good thing for them to be just released from slavery in Egypt. But God's intention for them was not just that he would release them out of slavery, but that he would release them out of slavery and into his presence. So the goal of the Exodus is that God's people would be with him. And the tabernacle is what ultimately provides that. And so what you see here is is that the, the Exodus is really all about a transfer of ownership. God's people are enslaved. They're owned by, they're enslaved to this tyrannical dictator, Pharaoh. God frees them, not so that they can aimlessly wander the desert by themselves and just figure it out. Because that would not be good news for God's people if he simply released them out of slavery and said, all right, you're on your own. (laughs) That would not be good news for them. He frees them out from underneath the tyranny of Pharaoh and brings them out underneath his gracious rule and authority. So the Exodus is about a transfer of ownership. It's about a transfer of allegiance from Pharaoh to Yahweh himself. And this is what the tabernacle ultimately accomplishes. So that's, that's something of the importance of the tabernacle, okay? The tabernacle is essential because it completes the exodus. The exodus is not complete until the people are in the presence of Yahweh in relationship with him, and the tabernacle is what makes that possible. Okay, so that's the importance of the tabernacle. The second thing we see in the text here is the purpose of the tabernacle. So let's think about that for a moment, the purpose of it. The purpose of the tabernacle, what the tabernacle does— is it provides a solution to our greatest need. The tabernacle provides a solution to our greatest need. Now, there's lots of different things that we would say, oh, I need that. There's lots of different things we would say, oh, that's really important, I must have that. Okay, so you may say things like uh, good education, actualizing your potential, uh, having a su- successful career, uh, finding a spouse, raising productive members of society in the form of Children, uh, achieving financial stability, planning for your retirement and your future. Those are all really important things that we would even say, you know, I need those things. And yet what the story of the Bible tells us over and over and over again is that none of those circumstantial things are the greatest need we have. Certainly those are real needs and everything I just mentioned is a very good thing something we ought to pursue. And yet what the Bible continually affirms is that our deepest need is not for some sort of circumstantial uh, thing to happen in our life. Our greatest need is that we have been exiled from God. We've been exiled from Him in relationship. Because of our rebellion, because of the ways that we have done what is right in our own eyes, the ways that we have chosen not to follow the instruction of the Lord for the idolatry that lives inside of us, for the ways that we have sinned against God and sinned against our neighbors, for all of those things that has left us exiled from God in relationship, alienated from him. And so that is our greatest need and that is precisely the need that the tabernacle is the solution for. The tabernacle provides a solution to our greatest need. And so you could say it like this, the tabernacle provides a way home from exile. We've been exiled from God in relationship with him, and the tabernacle is the solution to that greatest need. The tabernacle provides a way home from exile. Now, what we're going to do here for just a few moments is we're going to nerd out, okay? Can you do that with me? We're going to nerd out for a few minutes because uh, the text, if we observe carefully uh, what we see is that the Bible makes it very clear that the tabernacle does provide this way home from exile, okay? So let me just show you this. So uh, these are there's a couple pictures that I uh, took out of a book. Uh, Michael Morales is the guy's name who wrote a book on the Exodus, and these are both pictures from that book, just so you know. Uh, fantastic book, by the way, if you're looking for uh, some reading. Maybe some of you looking for something to put you to sleep at night. This would uh, surely help for many of you with that. But in, in the book, so he 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 lays out this this picture, which is you have in Genesis chapter three, you have God's people who were expelled out of the Garden of Eden. Okay? Adam and Eve did what was right in their own eyes, they rebelled against God, they sinned against him, and part of the consequence of that was that God expelled them out of the garden. And we're told that he expelled them eastward out of the garden. And then what did he place at the entrance to the garden to prevent them from coming back into his presence and having access to the tree of life? Caleb? He put two two cherubim and a flaming sword. Okay? So you've got God's presence, you've got the tree of life, you've got it guarded by these two cherubim, and the people are expelled eastward. And if you read the book of Genesis... Every time you see the word east or eastward, that is sort of a code word for away from the presence of God. That's what east describes. People going further and further away from God outside of God's presence. It's a a word that's used to describe uh, the rebellion of humanity away from and their expulsion away from God's presence, okay? So tree of life guarded by two cherubim and the people are expelled eastward, okay? Now you come to the tabernacle. You come to the tabernacle, and, and one of the curious things you find if you read all of those uh, instructions that, that God gives is that God actually cares what side of the, of the tabernacle the entrance is on, what way it faces. And you think, my goodness, what difference does it make if the entrance is on the north side or the south side or, you know, whatever? What difference does it make which way the tabernacle, which, you know, sort of direction it faces? Well, it does matter, and God tells his people, you are to put the entrance of the tabernacle on what side? Does anybody know? The east side. And so think about this. What this means is that when a person travels into the tabernacle and closer to the Holy of Holies where God's presence resides, which way are they traveling? Westward. So you've got God's presence and the tree of life being guarded by two cherubim, the people are expelled eastward. And God says, here, make this little tent thing. And then when you come into it, you're going to be traveling the opposite direction that you have been expelled from the garden from. And then when you get into the sort of center part there, the holy of holies is separated from the, most, or from the holy place by what? There's this curtain Anybody know what God instructs his people to have woven into the curtain that separates off God's presence in the most holy place? Two cherubim is what God says to put on the curtain that separates and blocks entrance for God's people to go into God's presence. So do you see, here's God's presence guarded by two cherubim, the people are expelled eastward, and then all of a sudden you see oh, God gives a way through the tabernacle for people to go back towards the presence of God, which is guarded by two cherubim. So what God is doing by giving these instructions for the tabernacle is he is making a way for his people to come home from their exile. The tabernacle undoes the expulsion from the garden that the people experienced. So in other words, through the temple, through the tabernacle, God is restoring what was lost in Eden. Do you guys see the connection here? Do you see the way that this text is set up like this? This is, this is God making an incredible provision for his people. And think about this. Every time the people participate in the activities of the tabernacle, every time they bring their sacrifices, every time they sprinkle blood, every time they do all those things that to us may seem so odd and bizarre, every time they do those things, they are symbolically and ritually reenacting a return to the garden. They're ritually and symbolically enacting physically with their bodies. They're enacting a return to God's presence. And God has made a way for them to experience coming back into his presence. Except what we see with the tabernacle is you've got this holy of holies, it's guarded. It's sectioned off and only one time per year, only one person can go in there. So the people of God have access to God's presence. They have real access to God's presence. But it's not a full access to God's presence. It's a mediated access. Somebody has to go into God's presence on their behalf. So the tabernacle is a stunning act of God's provision. The tabernacle is a stunning, it is an incredible act of God's grace and his mercy and his provision. And in the tabernacle, what is God doing? God is giving himself to his people. God is saying, here's this tent thing I want you to make. This is the way that my presence can dwell among you. So this is the provision that God is making. Because one of the tensions that the story of the Bible raises for us is you have this holy God who cannot be in the presence of sin. And you've got these unholy people who are stained and marred by sin and its presence in their life and in our world. And so how is it that a holy God, who cannot be in the presence of sin without consuming it, can be in the presence of his people without consuming them too? And the tabernacle is the answer to that. This is God's provision for how he, a holy God, can be among unholy people without consuming them, without destroying them. And I think it's important for us to just remind ourselves here that this is, this is entirely God's doing. God is the one who initiates this. God is the one giving them these instructions. <laughs> what, what's, what's, it, it would be comical if it wasn't so uh, disastrous. Uh, what's comical is that every single time the people of God try to approach God on their own terms, like we're going to see next week with the golden calf, it doesn't go well. It never turns out well for them when they say, I'm going to sort of like create a committee and we're going to drum up a way to, you know, we're going to sort of create a a way to be in God's presence. Every time the people of God try and do that, it ends with death and disaster. So God makes a way. God provides the way. And this is a stunning act of God's provision here in the Old Testament. And at the same time, there is a greater act of God's provision that is coming. As we read the chapters of the Old Testament, we see that God's people set up this tabernacle. When the nation is established in uh, the land of Israel, then the tabernacle becomes a permanent thing called the temple. But we see that the problem still exists, that God's people uh, continue to be marked by sin. They continue to be marked by rebellion and idolatry. They continue to do what's right in their own eyes. They continue to fail to be the uh, faithful covenant partner that God wants them to be. And so you've got the same, the same problem of God's people need uh, provision. And we see in Jesus that greater provision comes. In the, in the tabernacle, you have God bringing his presence into the Holy of Holies. God is present with his people. And what we see as we come to the New Testament is the exact same thing. God does that, not through a tabernacle, but he does it through a person. He does it through the person of Jesus. A verse that many of you are familiar with is uh, John 1.14, where it says, The Word became flesh and what? Dwell. And dwelt among us. That verse makes the point, uh, but when you see the original Greek, uh, it, it sort of makes it pop in 3D. The verb that's used there for dwelled is a word that literally means tented or tabernacled. So the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And what what John, the author of that gospel, is doing is he is saying, don't you see that the person of Jesus completes and fulfills? He is the tabernacle. This is God's presence with us. So everything the tabernacle was supposed to accomplish. God's presence being with his people. The way of, through the sacrifices and through the rituals, God making a way for their sin to be covered so that God could be in relationship with his people. Jesus tenting and tabernacling among us is the completion. He is everything that the Old Testament tabernacle was looking forward to and anticipating. He completes and perfects everything it was designed to do. We see in Mark's gospel In chapter 15, I'm not going to show it to you quite yet. You see, Jesus is executed, and as he hangs on the cross, he breathes his last, and then what happens? Anybody know? Yeah, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So that curtain that was in the temple that had those two massive cherubim, woven into it, that we're guarding God's people from accessing his presence, that curtain is torn in two. And the very clear and obvious reason that Mark is telling us that is to say, in the death of Jesus, we now have full access to God. Access to God before was walled off to the vast majority of people. It was only one person on one day it was Aaron or whoever the high priest was who could one day a year go into the Holy of Holies one time per year. And of course he would be wearing this uh, elaborate chest piece that had these, uh, had these 12 stones on it which represented the nation of Israel. And so he would, as a kind of new Adam, he would go back into the presence of God and he would be carrying or bearing the names symbolically would be representing the people of Israel as he went into the holy of holies. And so through his mediation on their behalf, the nation of Israel would be entered into the presence of God. But this was only one time per year and it was one person who was able to have this kind of access to God and to his presence. But then Jesus tabernacles among us. God's presence comes to us fully in the person of Jesus. And as he dies, the temple curtain is torn in two, and now all people are given access to God the Father. Every single person who would come to Jesus, who would give their trust and their allegiance to him, who would give their lives to following him, is given the gift of God's spirit, his presence to be with us, and through Jesus has access to God the Father. So in Jesus, we have complete and total access to God the Father. Now, of course, that does not mean that we experience the fullness of that here and now. Okay? Uh, we still live in broken bodies. Our world is still yet to be remade and restored the way that God designed it. But nonetheless, we do have full access to God the Father through Jesus. And we await the day when Jesus returns, and our world is the, the sin that is such a poison in our world is expelled, it is dealt with, and we can experience Life in the presence of God the way we were designed to. But until that day, we, we have this down payment. We have a down payment of through trust in Jesus and through the receiving the presence of the Holy Spirit, we have that access now in part. It, it, we don't experience it in full, but one day we will. And so this is the good news of the tabernacle is that Jesus was everything the tabernacle was supposed to be. And he is the greater provision for us that the tabernacle only sort of hinted at and pointed forward to and left us anticipating. And so I think as we, as we just think about what, what, do we, what do we do with this? Um, so sometimes, you know, you, you come to the end of a message and it's like there's a very clear, like, okay, the text says do this or don't do that. So there's a very clear, like, behavioral uh, thing that we're supposed to do. I think that as we come to a passage like this, I think that the the application for us is that we would just stop and marvel at God's provision. That we would just sort of sit with this for a minute and, and recognize and marvel at God's provision, not only in the tabernacle in the Old Testament, but also in the person and the work of Jesus. We should marvel at the fact that we offer God nothing. We offer him nothing. The only thing we bring to him is our messed up That's all we bring to him. We should marvel at the fact that God does not need us. We are not created by God because he had some need within him that we fulfilled. And so if if God destroys us, if God, you know, gets rid of us, then like all of a sudden God's gonna need to create some other new people so he can fill that need that he created for, for us. No, no, no. God does not need us and yet God desires to be with us. We offer him nothing. The God who spoke creation into existence could easily have, when sin entered the world, could have said, scrap this plan. I will just speak another universe into existence. He could have done that. And yet what God chose to do was to enter into the brokenness of his world and to take things that are broken and make them into something beautiful. And that's what God does and that's what the the tabernacle is all about. And so we should just pause and marvel at the grace and the mercy of God that that he would want to be with us. That says a whole lot more about God than it does about us. God doesn't want to be with us because we are so wonderful and special and God can't imagine heaven without us. Certainly we are made in God's image We have inherent dignity and value and worth, and that is an important thing, absolutely. But God does not need us, and yet God desires to be with us. And this morning we should just sit in that, and we should marvel in that reality, and we should worship the Lord because of that. As we come to the communion table today, we will partake of physical elements, that remind us in a physical way of the physical presence of God among us in the person of Jesus. And so as you receive those elements today, as you come forward down the center aisle, you can receive those elements. You can partake of them and drop your cup on the way back to your seat, or you can head back to your seat and spend a few more minutes in quiet uh, reflection and contemplation and prayer and confession. Uh, But my encouragement is come forward today and receive the broken body and shed blood of Jesus in a fresh way, knowing that w- with, the, with the reality fresh in our minds that God desires to be with us and he's made a way, he's made provision for us. So let's come to the table and celebrate that. As we, as we do, I'd like to invite you to take just a few moments of uh, time for silent reflection and confession and even uh, time to uh, offer your thanksgiving and your praise to God for his provision. So let's do that now. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in our thoughts, in our words, and our deeds, by the things that we have done as well as by all the things that we have left undone. We confess, Lord, that we have not loved you with our whole heart, mind, and strength. And we confess that we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. In your mercy, Lord, we pray that you would forgive what we have been, We pray that you would help us amend what we are and that you would direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Lord, thank you for making provision for us. Thank you, Lord, that you, despite the messiness of our lives, despite the taintedness of our hearts with sin and idolatry, Lord, thank you that in spite of that, you desire to be with us and that you have made a way for that to to be possible. We rejoice and we celebrate in your son, Jesus, today. And we just thank you that you love us and that you've made provision for us in him. And all God's people said, amen.